When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Ho, 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 and all that good stuff. <laughs> Merry Christmas, everyone. And welcome to another bonus episode of Terror Radio Podcast. If this is your first time joining me, then welcome. This is a podcast dedicated and bringing you the best of horror and thriller, old-time radio broadcasts, as well as original stories. I am your host, Keith, a.k.a. The radio show nerd. And again, I'm wishing you all a very happy as well as safe Christmas Day. Tonight's episode will be another personal playlist. As I stated before, I received such positive feedback on the first one I featured about two weeks ago. I decided to do one for today's festivities, if you will. So, without further ado, this is. Terror Radio. The five radio plays tonight will be Three Skeleton Key, which was featured on Escape Radio Series. After that will be Behind the Locked Door from The Mysterious Traveler. After that is Clarissa from Quiet Please. Then The Hangman's Rope from Hall of Fantasy. And concluding with the classic The Hitchhiker. From suspense. So, you know the drill. Sit back, turn down the lights, and let's begin with Three Skeleton Key, and we'll be ending with The Hitchhiker. Again, Merry Christmas, everyone. Tired of the everyday routine? Ever dream of a life of romantic adventure? Want to get away from it all? We offer you... Escape! Escape! Designed to free you from the four walls of today for a half hour of high adventure. Tonight we escape to a lonely lighthouse of the steaming jungle coast of French Guiana and a nightmare world of terror and violence. As George Tudouz describes it in his hair-raising tale, Three Skeleton Key. Picture this place. A gray tapering cylinder welded by iron rods and concrete to the key itself. A bare black rock, 150 feet long, maybe 40 wide. That's at low tide. At high tide, just the light, rising 110 feet straight up out of the ocean. And all about it, the churning water. Gray-green, scum-dappled, warm as soup, and swarming with gigantic bat-like devil fish, great violet schools of Portuguese man-o'-war, and, yes, sharks. The big ones. 
the 15-footers. And as if this wasn't enough, there was a hot, dank, rotten-smelling wind that came at us day and night off the jungle swamps of the mainland. A wind that smelled like death. Set in the base of the light was a watertight bronze door. And in you went. And up. Yes, up and up and round and round. Past the tanks of oil and the coils of rope, cases of wicks, racks of lanterns, sacks of spuds, and cartons and cans. And up and up and up. Round and round. Over the light storeroom was the food storeroom. And over the food storeroom was the bunk room where the three of us slept. And over the bunk room was the living and cooking room. And over the living and cooking room was the light. She was a beauty. Balanced like a ballerina on the glistening steel axle of her rotary mechanism. At night, you'd lie there on the stone deck of the gallery with the light revolving smoothly and quietly over your head, easing her bright white eye 360 degrees around the horizon. You'd lie there watching to see that the feeders kept working, that everything ran right. It wouldn't be bad. The other two fellows snoring in their sacks two levels down... You'd smoke your pipe to kill the stink of the wind. And it wouldn't be bad. About those other two, Louis and Auguste, what a pair. Louis, he was head man. Was a big fellow from the Basque country. Black beard, little hard black eyes, and a pair of arms that... I tell you, those arms were as big around as my legs. Yes, head man he was. And what word he let go was law. Silent fellow, and although I spent my first two weeks trying to strike up a real conversation, the most I could ever get out of him was... Uh, I took up this profession because I don't like people. They talk too much. It's quiet work, light tending. Let's keep it that way. You're getting to be as bad as August. I thought maybe for once they'd send me somebody that was Louis. And when he accused me of becoming like August, I quieted down because August was the talkingest man I've ever met, the talkingest and the ugliest. He was hunchbacked, stood four feet high, had red hair and big blue eyes. It seems he'd been an actor in Paris. Over 200 different productions, dear boy, at the Grand Guignol. Oh, but it was monstrous, horrible. The way we used to scare the audience, I I was hated. Yes, yes, they used to throw things and hiss and bare their teeth at me. Finally, it got too bad. I couldn't stand it any longer. I gave up the theater. My nerves, you understand. Yes, gave it up completely. I really did. I couldn't. It all started one morning at 2.30. I was on watch, lying on the cool stone deck, pulling on my pipe, staring out at the blackness, the phosphorescent combers and the big yellow stars, when, out of the corner of my eye, I noticed something show up for a second, something the light had touched, far off. I waited for her to come around again, and when she did, 
There it was. A three-master, a big one, about a half mile off and coming down out of the north-northwest, coming straight for us. You must understand, our light was where it was for a very good reason. Dangerous submerged reefs surrounded us and ships kept clear. But this one, this sailing vessel, was coming straight on. I went over to the gallery door and yelled down. glasses out now. I couldn't read her name, but I could see her quite plainly. All sails set, the foam creaming away under her bow, her beautiful lines. A Dutch ship, I guessed her. Why didn't she turn? Every time it passed, our light hit her with the glare of day. Ship? Where? North, northwest. The light will touch her in a moment. Uh, oh, can't you see us? Look at her. She just keeps coming on. The square heads. What is it? What is it? Watch. North, northwest. Ah. I know. I know what it is. What? The Dutchman, the flying Dutchman. We did a play about her. What? Oh, what a performance. You ghastly galleon, hag ridden, curse driven, must oh, on. Shut up, will you? Yeah, she's laughing. Yes. It's a sloppy way to come about. She's derelict, that's it. Derelict? Abandoned. Crew left her for some reason or another. But instead of sinking, she's gone on, running before every wind. She'll not run long. Not with these reefs to break her up. A beautiful ship. Now, why would men leave a beautiful ship like that? She didn't ram us, although we all expected it. But as we waited for the crash, she luffed again, caught some odd gust and went about. We watched her the rest of those black hours, peeling and rocking, pushed and pulled by every stray wind, every freak current. Watched her until the dawn came, till the sea turned from black to pearly gray. And on she came again, heading for us. We all had our glasses trained on her now. August, you can kill the light. Right, Chief. She doesn't look so good by daylight. Think she'll ground this time? I say, do you think she'll ground this time? Yeah, this is impossible. Absolutely impossible. What? Here, take my glasses. They're better than yours. All right. What is it, you're... I had to focus. And then... My breath froze in my throat. The decks were swarming with a dark brown carpet... that looked like a gigantic fungus... but undulating... And on the masts and yards, the guys and all, were hundreds, no thousands, no min... I don't know. An inestimable number of tremendous rats. See them? Yes, I see them. Now we know why she's derelict. Yes, now we know. What are you two doing? Here, give me a look. Yes, give him the glasses. Take a good look, chatterbox. Give you something to talk about. She's still heading for us. Yes. If she's going to turn, she'd better turn soon. Oh, she doesn't. You mean suppose she piles up on the key? It's low tide. Yes. Yes, it is. Well, where's all the conversation, August? Huh? Here, you want the glasses again? You want another look? No, no. She's still coming on. Go away! Go away! Turn, will you? 
say. I pray you turn. Cracked up. The rat. Look, on the water, like a carpet. They're swimming. Sure, they're swimming. Those are ship's rats. But they're swimming for the rocks. The door below, it's open. Well, well come on. And down we went, racing down the stone stairs, taking them three and four at a time. Scared? You bet we were scared. August, you get the windows. Maybe they can climb. We don't know. Right, Chief. But hurry, hurry. Look. You see them? No. Oh, yes, I do. Up at the other end of the rock. Look at them. Millions. Yeah, they smell us. Here they come. Oh, close the door. I can't. It's stuck. Here, let me. Move, you. Made it. Holy, that was close. One got him. Look, there. Well, get him. Watch it. Kick him. What a brute. He was as big as a tomcat. Bigger. And his eyes were wild and red. His teeth long and sharp and yellow. He went for us. Starving, ravenous. And we fought him. Fought that one rat all over the room. It was... Oh, believe me, I don't exaggerate. It was like fighting a panther. Uh, I got it. We'd better get aloft. Yeah. As we ran up the winding staircase, we passed the tiny windows of the various levels. And at every one was a thick, wriggling, screaming curtain of brown fur. I was ahead of Louis, and I dreaded each successive level. Suppose they had found a way in. Look at them. Oh, will you look at them? It's a nightmare. Will you look at them? The air of the gallery was thick and fetid with the stink of them. The light was dim, brown, filtered through the crawling mass that swarmed over the glass. All about us. We couldn't see the sky. Nothing. Nothing but them. Their red eyes, their claws, their wriggling, hairy snouts. And their teeth. The rats. They screamed and howled and threw themselves against the glass. They were starving. And we three... We stood very quietly. Oh, very, very quietly. In the center of the glass room. Under our beautiful light. And we waited. What can we do? What can we do, Keith? Take it easy. There it is. I, I, I can't. I just can't. Won't do any good. To, it won't do any good to stand here and shake. That's right. Go away. Go away, do you hear me? Go away, the They won't go away. Not until. Felicity. Not until. What? Not until they've been fed. can take just so much horror, and then you get used to it. And they were interesting to watch, you know. They couldn't understand the glass. They could see us, and they could rush at us. But that thin, invisible barrier held them off, stopped them. From time to time, we caught a glimpse of the rocks below. More rats down there, swarming brown velvet in the bright tropical sunlight. And then the tide began to rise.
only it'll drown some of them. <laughs> Ship's rats don't drown. <laughs> no, sir. You can't drown one of them. <laughs> They're all climbing up the tower. This bunch around us is getting thicker. Uh, say, what's the time? Quarter of six. You've got first watch, Sean. Right. Wake me at ten. I will. Come along, August. It was getting dark. One side of the room was lit a soft, filtered red. Sunset through the rats. Oh, very pretty. I set the wicks, checked my fuel, and then lit the lamp. It caught them, lit them in their gigantic wriggling web of pale, hairless bellies, twitching red tails, bright eyes. And then I started the rotary motor. The light drove them mad. As she swung slowly and smoothly about, she blinded them in the fierce, stabbing bar of light, moving continually about, ever turning, ever touching, ever moving around and around. And they, twitching and shuddering, eyes flaming when they were struck by the light, the bright light moving. And behind, on the dark side of the room, so close, so close, I dared not turn my back. But you can't help turning your back when you're in a room made of glass. On the dark side of the room, you couldn't see them, but only their eyes. Thousands of points of blank red light, blinking and twinkling like the stars of hell. And when I came up into the gallery early the next morning, there stood Auguste, his back to me. He was bowing to the rats. Waving his arms and making a speech. Dear, dear audience, I am going to play once again that magnificent role which made me the toast of the Paris theater. Prelati, the evil genius of the medieval underworld. I am he who did guide the dark soul of Marichal into the nether I stood staring at him, horror struck. (laughs) But he didn't notice me. The man had gone mad. He kept turning, telling his stories to all the rats, leaving no one out. August! August! Another one, a late comer. Take a seat on the aisle, dear patron. Stop it, stop it. Stop it. the bloodstained monster was my father in iniquity. He went on, bowing and scraping to the rats. His big blue eyes rolling and winking. His wild red hair waving about him. I grabbed him by the arms and... (laughs) his face. He looked at me like a child. And then his face screwed up. He looked as though he were about to cry. Go below. Go on. Oh, very well, then. Later, my dear audience, later. Matinee today. Sure, he was crazy. But I guess we all were. A few hours later, he came back up and caught Louie and me teasing the rats. Yes, sounds horrible. It was fun. We would get right up against the glass and make faces at them. It drove them crazy. They would scratch away, trying to get at our eyes. Louis was even cuter about it. He'd pull a piece of bread out of his pocket and press it against the glass. The rats would scramble into a solid ball, biting each other, clustering like grapes. From time to time, a whole knot of them would slip and fall the 110 feet to the surf below. Look! Look at the sharks. They're eating them. Those sharks are our friends. Ah. Here, here, I'll get another bunch together. <laughs> here, my beauties. Ah, that's it. File up. 
kill each other, huh? <laughs> there they go. August joined in, too. Very ingenious, August. He learned that if he spread-eagled himself against the glass, they'd bunch and bundle against his figure. Then he'd leap back. Look! My portrait in rats! It went on all day. And then... I was lying in bed. It was about midnight. I was very tired and I was just beginning to fall off to sleep when I became conscious of a new sound. I couldn't figure it at first. I got up, lit the lamp, and went to the window. Even as I looked out, I saw one of the panes begin to sag in. They had eaten the wood away. Louis, come quick! What? What is it? They found a way in! I held the glass with my hand. Now they were all going crazy, and assured of the success of this maneuver, were all nibbling away at the wood. Louis ran below and then returned with a large sheet of tin. We spread it against the window and hammered it into place. Even as we did so, we felt the heavy bodies thudding against the other side as the window gave way. There! That ought to hold. If it doesn't, we're done for. Rats can't eat tin. No, they can't. But what was that? I don't know. Came from below. The storeroom window. Uh, they're in. They're swarming up the stairs. Drop the trap. Right. Yeah, two of them got in. Let's go after them. We didn't have to go after them. They came at us. I leaped to one side and grabbed a marlin spike, swung, and smashed one in midair. No! I whirled to see Louis with the other. It had ripped his hand open and the blood was pouring out. He held his hand aloft and kicked at the snarling rat. I stepped and swung and got him. Oh, my hands. He got my hand. That's both of them, Louis. I'll get you something to tie that up. Blood! Look at it, my blood, I bleed. Don't worry about it, Louis. Here. I'll wind this kerchief around it. It'll be okay. Blood. There. There, that's not bad. Just the flesh. And then I became conscious of a new sound. They were gnawing their way through the wooden trap door. I watched the wood, fascinated. And even as I did, it began to give way. And a bristling, whiskery nose showed through. Louis! We've got to go up! The next level was the living quarters and kitchen. I slammed the trap there, but it too was wood. Oh... My blood. What are we going to do? I don't know. They'll be through this one in a minute. <laughs> to the gallery. The trap door in the gallery is metal. Good. Come on. <laughs> we made it. We lay across the trap door, exhausted, while below us the rats took over the entire tower. I could hear them howling and fighting over our food supply, our water, our leather. And all about us, the others screamed and glared in at us, swayed in a tangled mass, hypnotized by the ever-turning light. By morning, the air in the little room was horrible. Until now, we'd been getting air from the tower below. 
Now that was sealed off. And so was all our food and water. We lay exhausted, panting, waiting, waiting. And the hours crawled on. I was almost dozing from fatigue when I saw a sight that brought me too fast. Would you like to come in, my beauties? Would you? I hold the powers of life and death, and I can let you in, you know. August was standing by the glass, and in one hand he held a big wrench. He was tapping the glass gently, not quite hard enough to break it. I eased myself to my feet, and slowly, very slowly... Tiptoed toward him. All I have to do is tap just a little harder and... Uh, uh. I found a coil of wire in the toolkit, and I trussed him up, fastened him to a stanchion in the center of the room. Louis was of no help. He lay on his side, looking at his bloody hand, weak and sick as a baby. So there I was, a lunatic and a coward for company. And all about... Watching our little drama, The Rats. The day dragged by. The supply boat wasn't due for another 12 days. I don't know what they could have done if they had come. And we had only one way of summoning them. That was to shoot off distress rockets. But the rockets were four floors below. Even if they'd been right there in the gallery, I couldn't have opened a window to fire them. That night, I tended the light, but its flame was devouring our oxygen. The following day, we lay thirst-tormented, starving, waiting. And the following night, I again tended the light. But the small supply of spare wicking we kept in the gallery had become exhausted. And quite suddenly, at about midnight, the light went out. There was nothing I could do. Wicks were stored three levels below. Nothing I could do. Nothing. From time to time, I'd strike a match to see the clock. And when I did, it lit up the million red eyes about us. All about Watching. Waiting. Below, it had grown quiet. They'd cleaned us out, and now they, too, were waiting. All waiting. Then, the rats, quite suddenly, were silent. And then I heard it. Then I saw the sky and the stars. The rats were gone. I went to the glass. Out there on the water, a small freighter, a banana boat, showing a few lights, came softly and innocently towards us. Our light was out. They didn't know. I... I wanted to open the windows... To call out to them, to warn them somehow. But I was afraid. What if the rats were hiding from me, tricking me? So I waited. She grounded very softly on a reef not 200 yards from the quay. 
grounded so gently that the man playing the cornet... Was he a passenger, crewman, off watch? Didn't even stop playing. They tried washing her back off. I could have told them to save their fuel. The tide was rising, would have floated her free. And I waited. That's all. That's the story. The sun came up, and there wasn't a rat on the whole key. Every last one of that terrible army had left us, gone back to sea on their new ship. August, insane asylum. He never recovered. And Louis? They took him into Cayenne where he died of blood poisoning from his bite. Yes, that's the whole of it. And if you'll excuse me now, I must go set my traps. <laughs> no, no, mouse traps. No rats in this lighthouse. I should say not. Life in the lights isn't bad. But sometimes, when I see a strange vessel approaching... I get a little nervous. Sure. Somewhere on the seas, there's a little banana boat without a crew. That is, without a human crew. Escape is produced and directed by William N. Robeson. Tonight we have presented Three Skeleton Key by George Tudus, adapted for radio by James Poe. Featured in the cast were Elliot Reed as Jean, Bill Conrad as Louis, and Harry Bartell as Auguste. Special music was arranged and conducted by Del Castillo. Next week. You are standing on the deck of a ship headed on an illegal mission to Central America. Before you, holding a gun in your stomach, is a desperate man who has just given you the choice between being killed or becoming a murderer yourself. Next week, we escape with John and Gwen Bagney's exciting tale of a murderous trio of gunrunners in Central America, Maracas. Goodbye, then, until the same time next week, when once again we offer you Escape. Stay tuned now for Life with Luigi, which follows over most of these CBS stations. This is CBS, the Columbia Broadcasting System. The Mutual Broadcasting System presents The Mysterious Travel. Written, produced, and directed by Robert A. Arthur and David Coulton. And starring two of radio's foremost personalities, Lyle Sudrow and Robert Dunley, in Behind the Locked Door.
this is a mysterious traveler inviting you to join me on another journey into the realm of the strange and the terrifying. I hope you will enjoy the trip, and it will thrill you a little and kill you a little. So settle back, get a good grip on your nerves, and be comfortable, if you can, as I bring you the strange and chilling stories so many of you have asked to hear again. I call it Behind the Locked Door. Our story begins in the beautiful mountain region of Lake Mead, Arizona. A convertible car is speeding along a deserted road which winds through the mountains. The car slows down and turns into a dirt road. A few minutes later, it comes to a stop before a small mountain lodge. Kathy Evans, an attractive girl in her early 20s, gets out of the car, runs up the steps of the lodge to the front door. She knocks impatiently, looking about anxiously. Martin. Kathy. I thought I'd find you here. Aren't you going to ask me? Go away, Kathy. Martin, what's wrong? Go away. Go away. Not until I find out what this is all about. Let me in. Are you alone? Alone? Yes. Darling, look at yourself. You haven't shaved in days and... Martin, those deep gashes on your face. How did you get them? It doesn't matter. Darling, you must have lost a great deal of blood. And your fever. Yes, I know. Is it true about Professor Stephen? Yes. Why did you leave town so suddenly last night? The authorities are looking for you. What? Do they know I'm here? No. How could they? <laughs> it was intuition that brought me here. They must have found me. Martin, nothing makes sense. You returned from an expedition last night alone, unexpected. You stay in town one hour and then vanish, not even phoning it's, me. It's best that way, believe me, Kathy. You've got to tell me everything that's happened. I can't, Kathy, I can't. I'm your fiancé. I've got a right Kathy, to know. Kathy, go away, please. I won't go away until you tell me what's happened. If I do, then will you go? Yes. I... I don't know where to begin. I suppose if you can say it had a beginning, it, it was that day a little over two weeks ago in Professor Stevens' office. Come in, Martin. Come in. Have a seat. Thank you, Professor. Martin, how would you like to go exploring with me for, say, ten days, two weeks at the outside? Exploring where? The Vermilion Cliffs along the Colorado River. I found some wonderful Aztec pieces there last summer. One large cave I stumbled on proved to be a veritable treasure trove. Yes, yes, I've seen those Aztec pieces in the University Museum. Now, the Vermilion Cliffs still remain largely unexplored. I'm sure that we could turn up many more objects of interest. <laughs> it certainly sounds intriguing. The only reason I hesitate, Professor, is because of Kathy. Oh, I'm sure she'd give you a two-week leave of absence. <laughs> yes, I suppose so. 
How many of us would go? Well, it would just be you, myself, and an Indian guide, and three burrows. I find that the fewer there are on expedition, the better. Mm-hmm. When would we leave? Now, what about the day after tomorrow? All right, Professor, I'm with you. So these are the vermilion clefts, Professor. Yes. An awe-inspiring sight, aren't they? Yeah, they're as breathtaking as the Grand Canyon itself. I had no idea they towered so high. Yes, they make you realize just how insignificant man really is. Yeah. Now, this region is so desolate, Martin, that it's all but unexplored. That's why I'm drawn to it time and time again. Yes, I can understand that. It represents the challenge of the unknown. <laughs> Careful, Martin, you'll get the exploring bug. Oh, I've already been bitten, Professor. Well, if you're going to be an explorer and an archaeologist, I'll have to start teaching you the fundamentals of the profession. Stan, this seems like a good spot. We'll camp here for the night. Phew. It certainly is hot, Professor. Exploring isn't as easy as I thought. Yeah. All right, Professor, what is it? For 20 minutes now, you've been sitting on that rock staring at that cliff. Yeah. Note the boulders strewn over the face of that cliff. What about them? Well, that's a very peculiar landslide. If you carefully study the formation of it... What's peculiar about it? Many of the rocks look as though they'd been placed there by human hands. But why and by whom? Well, one of the ancient Aztec forms of punishment was to steal a person in a cave by means of a landslide or just piling heavy rocks in front of the mouth of a cave. That landslide, there must be hundreds of tons of rock there. Yes. Well, fortunately, we're prepared for it. Is that why you brought the dynamite along? Yes. <laughs> Probably all we'll find will be a skeleton. In that case, it'll have been a waste of dynamite. However, we'll chance it. Oh, Sam. What do you want? Get the case of dynamite, Sam. I'm going to blast that landslide. Professor. Better leave it same way it be. Why? Evil spirit sleep in cave. Better not wake him up. <laughs> you really believe that, Martin? I wouldn't laugh. Sam may be uneducated. But he senses things that you and I can't even begin to comprehend. Well, now, wait a minute. You mean you believe what he said about evil being asleep in that cave? I wouldn't say that I believe it. But nevertheless, I respect Sam's opinion. Sam, I still want to blast that landslide. Hey, get dynamite. Keep your head down, Martin. When I set that dynamite off, there are going to be a great many rocks flying around. Don't worry, Professor. I've got cover. Sam, you ready? Yes, Professor. Right. Here goes. Keep your head down. All right. It's safe now. 
Professor. I think you did it. I can see a small opening. It looks like a mouth of a cave. Yes, it is. Sam, let me have one of the flashlights. Martin, you take the other. Uh, I'll lead the way in. Just as you say, Professor. It doesn't seem too bad in here. Yes, it's all right. Yeah, what's that noise? Just rats scurrying around. Oh. Took me a huge cavern. Look at that ceiling. Must be 200 feet high. Look at the bats up there. Yes, huge ones. I have a feeling that this cavern and others extend for miles underground. Yeah, I... Professor, look. Skeleton. Yes. There's, there's another one over there. Yes. Let's see what else there is. Wagon train. What? Good Lord. Sam's right. It's a wagon train. A wagon train? Yes. But there are at least 30 or 40 wagons in this cavern. Look. Skeletons of horses. Yeah. Here's a skeleton with an arrow beside it. Let me see it. Appears to be a Navajo arrow. What do you think, Sam? Navajo. Professor, this... This wagon train, what's it all mean? Well, many years ago, this wagon train was attacked by Indians. Wagon train retreated into this cavern, hoping to save themselves that way. And then the Indians caused a landslide, sealing them in. Yeah. Poor devils. Look, notice that old gun lying there. Yeah. The flintlock seems to suggest that this wagon train must be at least a hundred years old. Yeah, probably headed for the California gold rush of 1848. Yeah. Well, we'll come back tomorrow and search this wagon train thoroughly. I'm sure we'll find many things of great interest. The next morning, after an early breakfast, Sam and I followed Professor Stevens back into the cabin. We spent the morning investigating the trunks and boxes we found on the wagons. And among the moldy clothing and 101 household articles, we found faded letters and newspapers which showed the wagon train had crossed the Mississippi in the summer of 1849, headed west for California and gold. We finished rummaging among the effects of the wagons. And the professor suggested we explore the cavern. We followed him from one cavern to another, each varying in size. Now and then, the professor would stop to mark our trail, for the caverns were honeycombed with countless passageways. How far do you think we've come, Professor? I should say we're about a mile from the wagon train. Huh? We'll go back a few more minutes. We'll go back now. This place evil. Now, Sam, if there are ghosts here, there's only the ghosts of the people in the wagon train. They wouldn't harm us. I tell you, evil. Feel it. All around. We'll go back. We'll go just a little further and turn back. Yeah, Professor, wait a minute. What is it, Martin? Oh, I think I hear running water. Yes, you're right. Come along. We seem to be getting closer. Yes, yes. Evil all around us. Can't be much further. Well, there it is. There. It's a small river. <laughs> Look how swiftly it's flowing. 
this probably flows for miles underground and it empties into the Colorado River. Say, hey, Professor, here along the bank, there's a tremendous pile of fish bones. Yes, so there is. What? Well, there are even more on the other side of the river. Mm. What do these huge piles of fish bones mean? It's very strange. Well, how do you account for it? I'm afraid that at the moment I can't. Sam, you any ideas about it? Evil all around us. I feel him strong. Professor, he's trembling. Sam, there's nothing to be afraid of. Look, I'll shine my flashlight around, see? We've been watched. Watched? What are you talking about? One stay here. I go. Sam, come back. You haven't even got a flashlight. Sam! Come on, Mark. We've got to catch him. Sam! Wait for us! I can still hear his footsteps. We've got to catch him. Convince off a serious injury running in the dark like that. Sam! Wait for us! Professor, it's Sam. Screamer. This way. He's probably broken his leg. Sounds more like a fight. sealed into this mountain by the Indians. What would have been the first thing they'd have done? Try to dig their way out. Exactly. They start digging and find there are a hundred-ton boulders blocking the entrance, and they have no dynamite. They're forced to give up. Yes. They spend days looking for another way out. Fail to find one. The day comes when all their food is gone. Starvation sets in. All right, all right. Then that would mean they would all die. Not necessarily. The strongest of them stumble along in the darkness and find the underground river. They catch an abundance of fish and are able to survive. The huge fishbone piles along the river. Right. The river was an everlasting supply of food. They continue to live by the river in the dark. Some probably went insane, died. Others adjusted themselves to their new environment. Professor, you... You think those... handful of survivors had descendants who are alive today? Inside this mountain? Yes, Martin. And it was one of them who clawed sand to death. What can those descendants be like? Being born and, and, and living in darkness? I can only guess. I should imagine they'd be blind or near to it. But their other senses would be remarkably developed. Their physical appearance. 
I don't know. It's not like a nightmare. A nightmare you can't awaken from. What, what's to prevent them from attacking us? Flashlights, for one thing. I'm sure light frightens them, just as fire frightens animals. Fortunately, I have a revolver. Well, we better move on. Wait a minute. What about Sam? There's nothing we can do for him now. Come along, Martin. We must find the trail I marked so that we can get out of here. Seems we've been searching days for the markings you left. Yes. Actually, it's been ten hours. Listen, what? The river. Yes. Yeah. Come along. Yeah. Once we reach the river, we'll be able to pick up the trail I'm on. Well, we're getting closer. Yes. There it is. Here we are. Look, Martin, there's my marking on the passageway. We found the trail. Yes. Martin, 2 a.m. We'd better rest for a few hours. We're both too exhausted to go on right now. One of us stand guard. And the other sleeps. All right. Well, I'll set up the first hour. Thank you, Martin. Keep the flashlight on. Don't worry. I will. In a matter of minutes, the professor fell asleep. And I sat on guard, flashing my light slowly around the huge cavern. I looked at my watch, and the seconds seemed like minutes, and the minutes like hours. My eyes grew heavy, and I finally dozed off. Suddenly, I awakened in the darkness to hear the professor screaming. Help me! Help me! but I couldn't find it. Then suddenly they were shot. By the flash of the gun, I could see the professor struggling with a huge, dark figure. And suddenly all was quiet. Except for the professor's moans. As I crawled toward him, in the darkness, my hand struck the flashlight. I turned it on, and there was the professor. Martin, I think... I'm wounded. You're bleeding badly. Let me stand you. Wounds. Leave at once. At once. But what about you? Professor? Professor! I felt his heart, but there was no beat. I staggered to my feet, shined my flashlight around until I found the professor's markings. I stumbled wearily along the marked passageway, trying not to remember my last glimpse of the professor's face. I hadn't gone more than a hundred yards when suddenly my flashlight flickered and went out. As I stood alone in the darkness, rats scampering past, I fought to keep from screaming. The darkness seemed to become heavier and more oppressive with each passing moment, and I had the feeling something was silently approaching. I backed up against the passage wall and waited, my eyes straining in the darkness, and then suddenly I was leaped upon by a wild fury. I threw my arms up and raised them and crossed my face and neck. Again and again, the darkness savage was not to sight, and I could feel the blood streaming down my face and neck. And then suddenly the 
deathly clawing ceased as my attacker turned to ward off something in the dark. As I sank to my knees, I was dimly aware of a fierce fight taking place, and then consciousness left me. Later. How much later, I have no way of knowing. I became aware of a heavy, calloused hand washing my face and neck with water. I winced in pain as the water flowed into the deep cuts, and then suddenly I remembered all. And remembering all, became aware of the calloused hand washing my face and the presence of someone beside me in the darkness. Who are you? For a moment, the hand hesitated. Then resumed washing of the neck. Well, can't you speak? Say something! The noise came from its throat that was more of that of an animal than a human being. If, if I could only see you. Do you have a name? It spoke. It seemed to repeat the word name, though I couldn't be sure. And faint from the loss of blood, I closed my eyes and fell asleep. When I awoke, my face and neck felt stiff and painful. It seemed to sense I was awake, for as I opened my eyes and stared into the darkness, it came to my side. Can't you understand anything at all? Don't my words make any sense to you? Why did you save my life? My hand brushed against its hand. And I could feel the sharp, claw-like fingers on it. I reached out in the darkness as I touched its face. It bit my hand. <laughs> I tried to get to my feet, but... It placed a strong hand on my shoulder and held me down. At that moment, I realized that not only was it my savior, but my jailer as well. I lost all track of time. Now and then, it would leave me. And I would cautiously get to my feet to steal off, but no sooner had I taken more than a few steps than it would be there at my side, forcing me to return to the bank of the river. I spent my every waking moment trying to think of a way to escape. Then, when my despair was greatest, an idea came to me. The professor had said that the underground river I lay beside emptied into the Colorado River. Though the odds were a hundred to one against my surviving, I knew it was the only possible way of escape. Slowly, I crawled a few remaining feet to the edge of the river and, leaning over, started to wash my face. I could sense that it was watching me. I leaned forward a few inches more and fell into the river. As I came up for air in the swift flowing water, I heard a splash beside me. A moment later, I felt its arms around me. The current swept us along with breathtaking speed, and as we clung to each other, I discovered that it couldn't swim. For what seemed hours, the river swept us along in the darkness, and I felt myself losing consciousness as I attempted to keep the two of us above water. Mm -hmm.
When, when I regained consciousness, Kathy, we were both lying on a sandbar in the Colorado River. And the sun was beating down on us. Darling, you're delirious from your wounds. You need a doctor. <laughs> I wish. I wish it were simple as all that. You're feverish. You need care. Oh, go away, Kathy. Go away. How can I? Leaving you alone like this? Don't you understand? I'm not alone. She's here. She's here? Yes. Didn't I tell you? It turned out to be a she. You're out of your mind. You don't know what you're saying. I first saw her that first time. Lying unconscious on that sandbar, my first instinct was to leave her there. But how could I? She had saved my life in the cavern and then jumped into the river when she thought I was drowning, even though she couldn't swim herself. Martin, I want you to get a grip on yourself. Just as I was dependent on her in the dark, she's dependent on me in the light. She's blind. She can't speak yet. She... Stop talking like that. <laughs> you can't believe it's true, can you, Kathy? Neither could I at first. What are you staring at? Huh? Is there anyone in that bedroom? <sighs> well, I'll soon find out. Why is the door locked? She's in there. Martin, you're sick. You don't know what you're saying. <laughs> I'll prove to you there's no one in that room. It's just your imagination. Give me the key to the door. Kathy, Kathy, Give it to me. Thank you. Perhaps when you see the room is empty, you'll be willing to return to town for medical treatment. There. I told you. This is the mysterious traveler again. Did you enjoy our trip? What's that, madam? You want a description of what Kathy saw when she opened that bedroom door? Well, you might ask Kathy. But the only trouble is, the poor girl gets hysterical when you question her about the occupant of that bedroom. I suggest you write a letter to the Museum of Horrors for a full description. They consider the woman of the mountain as their star exhibit. Because when she... Oh, you have to get off here. I'm sorry. I'm sure we'll meet again. I take this same train every week at this same time. You have just heard The Mysterious Traveler. You may now enjoy other exciting adventures of The Mysterious Traveler in the current issue of The Mysterious Traveler magazine. In our cast, Lyle Sudrow, Ann Shepard, and Robert Donnelly. With Maurice Traveler in the title role. Bill Tonkin speaking, this program came to you from New York. Mutual's ace commentator Cecil Brown, currently on a three-month fact-finding tour of the world, heads for the Orient on the last lap of his history-making trip. In these last weeks, Mr. Brown will bring you on the on-the-scene reports from such tinderbox areas as India, Hong Kong, Hawaii, Japan, and Honolulu. 
You won't want to miss any of the eyewitness accounts by this able commentator of the latest happenings in these headline-making spots of the world. Be sure to listen to the news reports of Cecil Brown over most of these stations. This is the Mutual Broadcasting System. And now... The Hall of Fantasy. Welcome to the Hall of Fantasy. Welcome to the series of radio dramas dedicated to the supernatural, the unusual, and the unknown. Come with me, my friends. We shall descend to the world of the unknown and forbidden down to the depths where the veil of time is lifted and the supernatural reigns as king. Come with me and listen to the tale of The Hangman's Rope. Jim, it came from our right. We'd better take a look. Yeah. <laughs> I hope nothing... Arnold, huh? Look. Hanging from that tree, swinging back and forth. It's a man. The Hall of Fantasy will present The Hangman's Rope in just a moment. And now for our story, an original tale of fantasy entitled The Hangman's Rope. a legend in hell, a tale about the hangman. For 23 years, the executioner for the crown. Jack Ketch was his nine governor. Jack Ketch. <laughs> I remember we were on our way back from the lake, Jim and Carol and I. And for some reason, we started back to the city later than usual. We hadn't been driving for more than half an hour when one of those sudden spring storms... Now, where did that come from? Someone said there might be a storm tonight, but I thought we'd be home before it broke. Well, we'd better put the wipers on. We started back too late tonight. What, uh, what was it that held us up, Jim? I don't know. A lot of things. When I finally looked at my watch, I couldn't believe my eyes. Yeah. Arnold, look huh? out. There's a man right in front of the car. You stay here, Carol. Come on, Arnie. We'd better take a look. Yeah, right. We didn't hit him, did we? I don't think so. Now, why would someone be out in the middle of the road on a night like this? Yeah, there's a lot of crazy people in this world, Arnie. Ah, he must have been one of them. Yeah, I'm getting soaked. Now, he was just about here. I, huh. I can't understand. Jim, look. Where? There. There beside the tree. I don't see anything. I guess I was wrong. You know, for a minute I thought... I thought I saw someone hanging from that tree. Oh, you must have been mistaken. You know, I can't figure this out, Arnie. That guy was out here on the road right in front of us. I saw him just as plain as day. 
But now there's no one around. Yeah. We'd, uh, we'd better get back to the car. Yeah, that's for sure. There's no sense looking back at that tree, Arnie. There's nothing back there. I don't know. I, I thought I saw someone swinging there back and forth with a... The rope around his neck. Oh, no, you couldn't have. Maybe it was some kind of optical illusion. It could have been a shadow or a branch or anything. Yeah, that's right. Anything. Well, there's the car. Oh, you two must like it out there in the rain. Are you kidding? No, I'm not. All the time that you were out there in the rain, the man you almost hit was talking to me. What did you say? You heard me. Oh, now, sis, wait a minute. I looked back at the car a couple of times. I didn't see anyone talking to you. Well, I don't know what's wrong with your eyes, then. I asked him if we couldn't give him a lift. And he said, no, he, he only had a little distance to go. Carol, honey, this is the truth. We didn't see anyone near this car. No. Look, I can prove it. He insisted I take this... Oh, that's strange. What? He, he was... He was such an unusual man. Not American. He... He insisted that I accept a ring from him. Practically forced it on me. I put it in my pocket and... And now it's gone. And in its place... There's a funny little piece of rope. Shaped like a... Like a hangman's noose. I knew Carol wasn't lying to us. I asked her if she would let me have the little piece of rope. After I dropped them off at their place, I went home, took it out, and set it on the table. I can't explain it, but there was something about that rope which seemed old. It was made of hemp, the kind of rope you would imagine Jack Ketch might have used 250 years ago when he was the hangman. That night, as I slept... My sleep was troubled. In my dreams, there was a huge black gallows. I saw a man climbing the stairs to his death. He reached the top and stood there. Standing beside him was a black-hooded man. He raised his hand and... The trap door sprung open. There was a scream. And then I saw this man swinging back and forth. His face was hidden from me, yet there was something strangely familiar about him. I felt as if I knew him quite well. We'll return to the tale of The Hangman's Rope in just a moment. Back now to our tale of fantasy entitled, The Hangman's Rope. When I awoke from my dream, I couldn't get back to sleep. For in the black blankness of sleep, I had come into contact with death. As the morning approached, I fell into a nervous sleep. I was awakened... for lunch today? Mm. What time? Oh, about one. I hope you'll forgive me if I don't sound awake, Carol. I, I just couldn't sleep last night. 
I didn't sleep either, Arnie. I'll, I'll see you at one. Then I guess I wasn't the only one who missed out on sleep last night, huh? That's right. I don't know what it was, but I had the craziest dream. When I woke up, I couldn't get back to sleep. But that's what happened to me, too. What, uh, what kind of dream was it, Carol? Well, everything was dark and gloomy. I seemed to be watching a, an execution, an old-time execution. Maybe two or, or three hundred years old. A man walked up the steps of the gallows. Another man was there with a black hood over his head. He raised his arm. The trap door opened. And... And the, and the man swung back and forth. And there was something familiar about him. Isn't that right? Yes, but how did you know? Because my dream was the same as yours, sis. Exactly the same. Jim's and my vacations were due the following week. We decided to spend it up at the lake, where his family had a cottage. Carol said she might be able to join us on the last weekend, but not before that. Jim and I left the following Friday night. Well, I can certainly use this vacation. And maybe we can catch a few northerns this time, huh? <laughs> maybe. Uh... Is your family going to come up here while we're there? No, no. Carol will be up the last weekend, that's all. Mm-hmm. Well, then I guess we'll have the place to ourselves, huh? Yeah, I guess so. Hey, why are you stopping here? Last Sunday night, this is where we stopped. I'm going to get out and take a look at the side of the road for a minute. Oh, Arnie, why don't you forget about it? I just want to check it, that's all. That's the tree, isn't it? I... I think so. On that limb. That's where I saw him hanging. Oh, just thinking about it makes me nervous. Come on, let's go back to the car. All right. Carol said that while we were out of the car, she was talking to the fellow we saw. If that's the case, I can't understand why we didn't see him, too. You know, Jim, there just wasn't enough time for him to get away from the car without our seeing him. Unless... Unless what? Unless he was never there. Oh, but that could... Arnie! Look! In the car seat. Another little piece of rope. I could stop him, Jim threw the little noose out into the darkness. A little piece of rope, an inanimate thing, coiled and twisted, which somehow seemed to be alive. We reached the cottage perhaps half an hour later, and though we were both disturbed by what had happened, still it didn't interfere with our sleep. The next day, we went out fishing early, had little luck, and were on our way back to the cottage when the woman who owned the property next door stopped us. Good morning, Mr. Stanley. Oh, good morning, Mrs. Bennett. Uh, out for the weekend? Well, for the next two weeks. Oh, excuse me. Uh, Mrs. Bennett, this is Arnold Slade. Uh, pleased to meet you, Mr. Slade. Well, thank you. Same here. Uh, you must be that young man that Carol's going to marry. Uh, yes, that's right. Uh, she'll make you a fine wife, Mr. Slade. <laughs> uh, uh, yes. Uh, uh, the reason I stopped you, Mr. Stanley, is, is this. Mm-hmm. There's 
something strange going on out here. Oh, what do you mean? Well, the constable came by the other day and asked me if I'd seen any strangers here. A couple of people have died over on the other side of the lake. And the constable ain't been able to find out what happened. How... How did these people die? Well, that's what's so strange about it. Both of them were killed by hanging. Hanging? That's right. Old Mr. Taylor, who, who lived about a, oh, a mile down by the shore, he was one of them. And he couldn't hardly walk. They found him swinging from a tree. But he was several feet off the ground. And nobody can figure out how he got up there. What the woman had said frightened me. It seemed as if we were getting deeper and ever more deeply into something from which we would never be able to get away. That night, it was Saturday, Jim and I went out for a walk. It was a particularly dark night. The moon was obscured by clouds, and as we walked along, I could hear the chirping of many crickets. And occasionally a bullfrog's hoarse voice raised in protest. Arnold... This thing has me worried. In what way, Jim? This whole thing. Last Sunday night and today when we stopped by the tree. And then what Mrs. Bennett told us. I've been thinking about it, too. Well, that's strange. What? The crickets have suddenly stopped. It's too quiet. Jim, it came from over there. We better take a look. Yeah. Quiet, just as you said. There must be something terribly wrong up here. I hope nothing. Arnold, go. Huh? Look. Hanging from that tree, swinging back and forth. It's. It's a man. What are we going to do? We better cut him down. No. We better call the authorities first. I guess you're right. Come on, Mrs. Bennett's got a phone. If we hurry, we may be able to get out a great deal of help to the authorities. Jim, did you notice how high that branch was? I saw it. Yes? Why, Mr. Stanley, it's you. Uh, Mrs. Bennett, may we use your phone? Well, I suppose so. Uh, come in. Thanks. Thank you. But it's in the other room. Thanks. Uh, what's the matter, Mr. Slade? It looks like something's happened to upset you two. Well, it, it, it has. It certainly has. The constable... Why, what's happened? We were out Mr. for Jim a walk. Yes? yes? We sir. heard a scream. I oh. think you'd better we get out of where the away. scream had we come from. A and hanging from a we tree. found a man hanging from a tree. That's right, hanging. Yes, we'll stay here at Mrs. Bennett's. Yeah, thanks. Oh, what, you're telling me the truth, young man? That's the truth, ma'am. Mr. Stanley, is what Mr. Slade told me the truth? I'm afraid it is. Oh, then no one is safe around here. I wonder who it was. What difference does that make, Mrs. Bennett? A man's been murdered. It makes a lot of difference, Mr. Slade. If it was Bill Roberts, then it was just like the other two. I saw him just the other day. And he said someone was playing a joke on him. That he'd been sent a, a little piece of rope. Shaped in the form of a noose. You are listening to the tale of The Hangman's Rope on this week's journey down the corridors of the Hall of Fantasy. We'll return to our story in just a moment.
And now, back to our story, entitled, The Hangman's Rope. A little piece of rope. Both Jim and I stared at each other for a moment. It might be coincidence. We knew that, but it was difficult trying to make ourselves believe that. About half an hour later, the constable arrived. You two found him, that right, Mr. Stanley? That's right. We uh, were out taking a walk. We heard a scream, and then we found him. Can't make heads nor tails out of this. Three of them. Three deaths in two weeks, all the same way. They all received a little piece of rope just before they died. A little piece of rope? Yeah, that's right. I say all three. I ain't seen the body yet, but I have a pretty good idea who it is. Bill Roberts. It's enough to make a person afraid of the dark, Constable. Yeah, ain't it? Well, I want you two to take me to him. I'll go, too. No, you stay oh, here, but... Mr. You stay off the phone. Oh. I don't want the rest of the people to hear anything about this, at least for the time being. Things are bad enough as it is. All right, come on, let's go. Now, remember what I said, Mrs. Bennett. Don't you worry, none, Constable. I hope that woman stays off the phone. The whole county will be in an uproar if she doesn't. Do you, uh, have any idea who's behind these deaths? Well, I haven't. Funny thing, he was up so high. I don't see how he could have gotten up there by himself. I only wish I had something to work on. Well, we'll see if he's just like the others in a little while. How far away was he? There. There he is, Constable. I want to get a look at his face. Yeah. I was afraid of that. Who is it? Bill Roberts. But how did he get up there? Branch is 20 feet off the ground. It would take an acrobat to climb that tree. Bill wasn't any acrobat. Well, how did he get up there? I don't know. Three people received pieces of rope, and then a couple of weeks later, we find him hanging from a tree. You tell me the answer. We cut him down, but it took almost an hour to get up on that branch to do it. We put him in the constable's car and drove him back to town. Before he left, we told him that we too had received the little gift, the noose of rope, which had been in three instances the forerunner of death. When we got back to the cottage, we had a bite to eat, and seeing as we weren't in the mood to sleep, we sat down to read. I picked up a little book I hadn't seen before and read it from cover to cover. It held an eerie fascination, and I wasn't able to put it down till the last page had been turned, the last word read. Jim? Hmm? Where did you get this book? I don't know. I don't think I've ever seen it before. Why? It looks like a first edition of 200 years ago. Well, let me see it. Here. Hmm. A short history concerning the mysterious reappearance of Jack Ketch, a hangman who served as executioner for 23 years. I've never seen this book before. Well, then how did it get here? I don't know. Hmm, Jack Ketch. Say, he was the hangman in England who took too much pleasure in his work. Isn't that right? I think so. How much of this did you read? All of it. It's not very long. And this is what I got out of it. Before he died, the book says... He had made some kind of a pact with an evil power. It seems they actually do have a written copy of that agreement somewhere in England. And there's his signature. And an illegible scrawl that no one has ever been able to decipher. 
The pact promises life after death for him in exchange for certain services. Then the book says that year after year some rather mysterious deaths have occurred. They find the victims hanging from the branch of a tree. A tree almost impossible to climb. And the book also says that each of the murdered people received a little piece of rope before their deaths, identical to the ones Jack Ketch used as executioner. That is the warning. The warning of death to follow. But that's impossible. The man's been dead for over 250 years. That's right, he's dead. But the rest of the story, it's exactly the same thing that's happening to us. Two days later, in late evening, the rest of the story unfolded. Jim had gone down to the store to pick up some cigarettes. I'd been down to the shore doing a little fly casting and had started back up to the cottage. I was surprised at how quickly night had fallen. I wish that I'd brought along a flashlight. From somewhere across the lake, I heard the cry of a dog, and the sound of it filtered through and was carried along by the night air. For some reason, I became unaccountably nervous. I stopped walking. I felt someone was watching me. Then, from the darkness of the trees, a man emerged. Here now. Where be you going? Well, back up to my cottage. I was doing some fly casting till night came. Any luck? No. Uh, I'd better be going. No need to hurry away. Nice out here, ain't it? I suppose so. Strange thing, you know. The little creatures. They stopped. Little creatures? That's right, Governor. Crickets and the frogs. They stopped talking. Yes, they... They have. You frightened me, Governor? Of course not. <laughs> what are you laughing at? You wouldn't understand it, Governor. Is that you down there, Mr. Slade? Oh, uh, uh yes, Mrs. Bennett. Uh, do you mind if I join you? No, no, of course not. Ah, oh, good. I'd better be going, eh, Governor? I'll see you another time. Uh, <laughs> who who are you talking to? I don't know. He, he he just stepped out of the darkness and there he was. Well, I I guess he's gone now. Yes, I guess he is. Where is Mr. Stanley? Well, he went down to pick up some cigarettes. He should be back soon. Oh, well, the constable told me to tell you that, that he'd be out tonight. Oh, thank you. Would, would you mind walking me back to my place, Mr. Slade? It, it's rather frightening out here when it's this dark. I'll be glad to. That man you were talking to, what, what did he look like? Well, I don't know. I couldn't see his face. He had an accent. It sounded mm. like he might have come from London. Wait a minute. Huh? I... I can't understand it. The crickets and frogs, they've been starting and stopping all night. They must be afraid of something. Every time they stop... What'd you say? Every time they stop, something happens. Arnold, where are you? Uh, 
I'm walking Mrs. Bennett back to her cottage. Anything wrong? No. I got back from the store and I was wondering where you were. It's just that I have a strange feeling that something is going to happen. Let's go up to our place, Mrs. Bennett. Maybe the constable will want to see you, too. That's a good idea. Land sakes, Mr. Slade. The strangest things have been happening out here lately. Arnold! We'll be right there, Jim. Well, there's someone up here now. I thought I was... Jim! Something's wrong, Mr. Slade. I don't know. Jim! What's the matter? Answer me! Events portrayed in these programs are fictional, and any similarity to actual events or persons, living or dead, is purely coincidental.
groaned in pain at night where the windows shuddered at the gentlest touch of the wind. Where door latches suddenly gave up their grip and let the night come sniffing into the house to paw at your eyes and wake you to the other silences that lay around you. It was never warm there. In the winter, old Heinz kept a fire going in the fireplace in the old sitting room, but the, the logs were scrawny and the draft was bad. And, and the flames seemed to grudge us their warmth so that we shivered all through the day. We're glad when night came and we could escape to the meager comfort of the drafty bedrooms. And in the summer, there was a dampness about the place. An unhealthy clamminess drifted from the walls and stirred uneasily among the ancient smells of decay that clung to the place. Well, I suppose you could call old Heinz a, a character. You said you didn't know him? An immigrant from the Rhineland sometime in the early 70s. Uh, that would make him, uh, let me see, how old? Ich war im Rheinland geboren. In the year 1862. That's right, uh, 1862. He was an old man, but he never appeared old. You might have taken him for a vigorous man of 60. His hair and his scraggly mustache were jet black. I suspect he dyed them regularly. And his blue eyes seemed as keen as those of a boy of 18. And he'd never been away from the house for a single night, he used to say, from the day he bought it and moved into it in 1888. And it was an old house then. Yes, I spent some very dreary days and nights in that house. What? I couldn't afford a better place to live. No, people don't go to live in a haunted house if they can find another place, you know. Well, yes, of course I'd heard it was haunted before I went there to live. Do you believe in haunted houses? No. Neither did I, of course. Well, I agree, it did look like a haunted house. I've told you about the sounds in the night. I mean, I've told you about some of the sounds in the night. Yes, of course, there were other sounds. Well, please, let me tell it my own way. Well, Clarissa, for instance. Clarissa in particular. Clarissa, above everything else. I had lived there nearly a year. Heinz and I sat that first night alongside the fireplace. I remember he'd asked me to share a bottle of Ben Custler Doctor with him. We sat in front of the stingy little fire. And there was a kerosene lamp on the table and Heinz in his old black coat with the sleeves that were too short. You like the wine then, Jesse? Yeah, very much. Very much. I have not much left. This is from before the war when it was easier to get, you see. But now, well, it is... Almost to your last. You shouldn't be so generous with it, Heinz. Oh, no, no. Good wine always schmeckt better. Then with a friend you drink any shot. Uh, a little more? <laughs> Not for a moment, thanks. Yes, to sit by the fire and look down into the coals and see images of the things past. Drink wine and see the images grow clearer. Ah, it is good in the old age. You've 
Lived here alone for a long time? Yeah, for a long time. Long, long time. I'm used to it. Used to the lights and the little fire and the silences. Yes. It is cold for this time of the year. Now listen. Mrs. Lewis? someone singing. So? Did you hear anything? It is Clarissa. What did you say? Clarissa, my daughter. Well, I didn't know you had a daughter, Heinz. Yes. Uh, Mr. Morvine. Uh, no, thanks. I... I haven't seen her around. No. Well, is she... Excuse me, Heinz. Uh, you will forgive me, Jesse. Uh, she's a child. I do not wish you to be bothered. Why, she wouldn't bother me. Heinz, I like children. There's enough left here in the bottle for one more for each of us, huh? Thank you, Heinz. Yes. Schlafwohl. And I drank the last of the wine with the old man. And then I climbed the creaking stairs to the dreary little room, carrying the kerosene lamp in one hand and casting... Fabulous shadows on the peeling wallpaper. Seeing the ancient plush-covered rocking chair nodding away at me as I entered the room. As if a startled occupant had suddenly deserted it at the sound of my footsteps on the stairs. And the cold spring rain drenching the window panes. And the murmured complaints of the leans and rafters of the old house. The musty fumes of the wine I had drunk kept sleep away for a while when I blown out the lamp. The melody of that children's song flowed again across my mind as I lay there. My thoughts wandered to the lonely child that dwelt in the haunted house with the old man and the newcomer student. I smiled to myself as I thought, now that settles the question of the house being haunted, doesn't it? People have heard the little girl singing to herself in the night. They've not known that a little girl lived here, too. Well, that's the ghost. And I smiled again at superstitions. And another idle thought struck me. I wondered at the child's age. Ten or twelve years old by the sound of her voice. And somewhere in the back of my drowsy mind, I seemed to remember that Heinz had told me Helena, his wife, had died... Well, was it the year of the San Francisco earthquake? Well, that would be 1906. That would be 42 years ago. And this was a child of 10 or 12. I must have been mistaken. I was very sleepy. The wine, the rain. The dark. I stood and watched him a long time, 
eyes wandered to the windows of the old house searching for a flash of color that might be a child's hair ribbon. Or how I listened for the sound of a young boy singing a little song the children who danced so long ago on the bridges of Avignon. I didn't even notice that I was humming a song under my breath. about them. Well, I don't know, Heinz. If they come and ask me... Jerry, 
I tell you something. Well? Clarissa can't go to school. Well, why not? I, I told you it doesn't cost anything. It is not that. Well, then? She, she's not well. Oh. Oh, I'm sorry, Heinz. Uh, look, uh, would you like it if I gave her a little of my time and, and taught her some of the elementary? No, no, please. Don't. Well, I'd be glad to. No. Well, have it your way, Heinz. I don't mean to intrude on your affairs, but after all, a, a child... I'm sorry, Jesse. I thank you, but no. All right. Forget it. Well, I couldn't forget it. A kindly old man. Yes, he was kindly. And a child who had never seen the inside of a schoolroom who was growing up to become, well, what? In an ancient, moldering house, a house that had lived too long. How long would a father born 86 years ago? Alone at night in the darkness with the house, grumbling and complaining around me. I thought about the plight of the child. Sometimes I could hear her song far away somewhere in the dank recesses of that crumbling house. And my thoughts revolved again about this mystery. Heinz said she was not well. Heinz would not allow her to appear. Was Clarissa some misshapen monster child that she must be pent up and never see the sun? Was she... I detest mysteries of that kind. I love the good, clean mysteries of abscissa and ordinate, the logarithm and anti-logarithm of the calculus and the grand old theorems devised by the ancients. But the fascinating mysteries of the human mind and of human behavior are alien to me. They're my hate. And my thoughts crept further and further away from the ten numbers as doubt and speculation about the child laid hold of my mind. In the night, how often I heard her sobs, I thought, sometimes close outside my door. And yet when I opened the door, there was nothing. And old Heinz grew more and more taciturn. He never spoke of his daughter. He seemed to avoid me by day and to disappear by night. But the summer came then, and the fall, and winter. My book was going badly. And my thoughts wandered. I must leave this place, I thought, or find out this mystery. And again I asked the old man if there was not something I might do for this pathetic child, this invisible, haunting voice. No, Jesse. There is nothing you could do. But Christmas is coming, Heinz. Uh, what can I get it for Christmas? No, why not, Jesse? What? My Helene... She died on the eve of Christmas. Well, uh, but Heinz, you owe it to the child. No. But let us not speak of it again. But to me, the thought of Christmas passing by this child was unspeakable. I determined that if the old man would do nothing about it, I would. You know, I had little money, and there was so little I could do. But I did come into the town here, and I found a toy for her. I, I found one I could afford a little woolly lamb. A little woolly 
white lamb with black buttons for eyes and a, a blue silk ribbon about its neck and a gay little blue flower in its mouth. Well, I hung a little card about its neck that said, Merry Christmas to Clarissa. And on Christmas Eve, Heinz and I shared the last bottle of Ben Costler Doctor before the miserly little fire. And I gave him one of the handkerchiefs my little sister Miriam had sent me, and he gave me an old stone crib with a heavy pewter top that he said came from Heidelberg. And we regretted that there was no creamy Pilsner Urquell to drink from it. Wished each other a happy Christmas. And then, in the night, I was awakened by a tiny sound. And I lay awake silently for a moment. And there was another sound. A hesitant little footstep. And a rustling at the dresser across the room from me. And I lay quietly and listened. <laughs> Is that you, Clarissa? Is that you, Clarissa? Do you like it?
was quality in her voice this time that brought me out of the bed and into the hall. I called in alarm. Clarissa! I stepped back into my room and lit the kerosene lamp. And as I stepped out again toward the hallway, Heinz confronted me. What's my hunting, Jesse? Why can't you hear her, Heinz? Something's wrong, she said. No, go back by your room, Jesse. Oh, but Heinz! Don't beat me, Jesse! Go back! Now, Heinz, listen to me. Something's awfully wrong with that child, and I... I will take care of her, Jesse. Please, Mark. In your room. Now, see, here, I... I take care of my own man, huh? I reached for the door at once, but it was locked from the outside, and I beat on it and stormed at it in the cold, but for once it held. I screamed at the father threatening every kind of vengeance on him, till at last I suddenly realized that I was being hysterically silly. In the silence, I could hear nothing but the moan of the wind around the rusty cornices of the house and the hiss of snowflakes against the window. And I sat down, shaken, bitter at myself for giving way to such an outburst over a child's crying in the night. And at last I lay down again. And in the frosty silence of the early dawn, I fell asleep. before he died. He died there in my room, yes. What? 
Oh. Yes. In the little half-light, I found the kerosene lamp and I lit it. I took the key from the floor where he dropped it. No. I found the room very easily. It was at the far end of the hall. I called. Clarissa? Clarissa? And there was no answer. So I unlocked the door. And holding the light above my head, I walked over to the bed. And there, lying on the bed, dressed in a pinafore that might have come out of the ten-year-old drawing in Alice in Wonderland, clutching a little woolly lamb to her breast, there lay a tiny old, old woman with long white hair braided into pigtails. takes pleasure in bringing you Suspense. Suspense. Columbia's parade of outstanding thrillers produced and directed by William Spear and scored by Bernard Herman. 
the notable melodramas from stage and screen, fiction and radio, presented each week to bring you to the edge of your chair, to keep you in suspense. Good evening. This is Orson Welles. I'm very happy I am to be back in the United States and back on the Columbia Network, even for so short a visit as this one. Back with old friends like Johnny Dietz, who's tonight's director, and Bernard Herman. The Mercury Theater presented tonight's radio play for the first time last year. We came right out then and hailed it as a classic of the medium. Nobody argued the point. A lot of people asked us to do it again, so it's gratifying to get the chance now and to find a favorite of ours in this distinguished anthology of spook shows. Personally, I've never met anybody who didn't like a good ghost story. But I know a lot of people who think there are a lot of people who don't like a good ghost story. For the benefit of these, at least, I go on record at the outset of this evening's entertainment with a sober assurance that although blood may be curdled on this program, none will be spilt. There's no shooting, knifing, throttling, axing, or poisoning here. No clanking chains, no cobwebs, no bony and or hairy hands appearing from secret panels or, better yet, bedroom curtains. If it's any part of that dear old phosphorescent foolishness that people who don't like ghost stories don't like, then again, I promise you, we haven't got it. Not tonight. What we do have is a thriller. It's half as good as we think it is. You can call it a shocker. It's already been called a real Orson Welles story. Now, frankly, I don't know what this means. I've been on the air directing and acting in my own shows for quite a while now, and I don't suppose I've done more than half a dozen thrillers in all that time. Honestly, I don't think even that many, but it seems I do have a reputation for the uncanny. Quite possibly, a little escapade of mine involving a couple of planets, which shall be nameless, is responsible. Doesn't really matter... Don't think I disapprove of thrillers. I don't. A story doesn't have to appeal to the heart. It can also appeal to the spine. Sometimes you want your heart to be warmed. Sometimes you want your spine to tingle. The tingling, it's to be hoped, will be quite audible as you listen tonight to The Hitchhiker. That's the name of our story. The Hitchhiker. Gallup, New Mexico. If I tell it, perhaps it'll help me. Keep me from going, going crazy. I gotta tell this quickly. I'm not crazy now. I feel perfectly well, except that I'm running a slight temperature. My name is Ronald Adams. I'm 36 years of age, unmarried, tall, dark, with a black mustache. I drive a 1940 Buick license number 6Y175189. I was born in Brooklyn. All this I know. I know that I'm at this moment perfectly sane. But it's not me who's gone mad. It's something else. Something utterly beyond my control. I'd love to speak quickly. At any minute, the link may break. This may be the last thing I ever tell on Earth. The last night I ever see the stars. 6 days ago I left Brooklyn to drive to California. Goodbye, son. Good luck to you, my boy. Goodbye, mother. Here, give me a kiss. And I'll go. 
I'll come out with you to the car. Oh, no, it's raining. Stay at the door. Oh. <laughs> What's this? Tears? I thought you'd promise me you wouldn't cry. Oh, I know, dear. I'm sorry. But I I do hate to see you. Well, I'll be back. It'll only be the, on the course three months. Oh, it isn't that. It's, it's just the trip. Ronald, I wish you weren't drowning. Oh, Mother, there you go again. People do it every day. I know, but... You'll be careful, won't you? Promise me you'll be extra careful. Don't fall asleep or drive fast or pick up any strangers on the road. Oh, gosh. I think I was still 17 here, you two. Oh. And why? I mean, as soon as you get to Hollywood, won't you, son? Of course I will. Don't you worry. There's nothing going to happen. It's just eight days of perfectly simple driving on smooth, decent, civilized roads with a hot dog or a hamburger stand every day. The drive ahead of me, even the loneliness, seemed like a lark. I reckoned without him. Crossing Brooklyn Bridge that morning in the rain, I saw a man leaning against the cables. He seemed to be waiting for a lift. There were spots of fresh rain on his shoulders. He was carrying a cheap overnight bag in one hand. He was thin, nondescript, with a cap pulled down over his eyes. I would have forgotten him completely, except that just an hour later, while crossing the Pulaski Skyway over the Jersey Flats, I saw him again. At least, he looked like the same person. He was standing now with one thumb pointing west. I couldn't figure out how he got there, but I thought probably one of those fast trucks had picked him up, beat me to the Skyway, and let him off. I didn't stop for him. And late that night... I saw him again. It's on the new Pennsylvania turnpike between Harrisburg and Pittsburgh. It's 265 miles long with a very high speed limit. I was just slowing down for one of the tunnels. And I saw him. Standing under an arc light by the side of the road. I seen quite distinctly the bag, the cap, even the spots of fresh rain. He hallowed at me this on the gas like a shot. That's lonely country to the Alleghenies, and I have no intention of stopping. Besides the coincidences or whatever it was, maybe the Willies. Stop at the next gas station. Yes, sir. Uh, fill her up. Certainly, sir. Check your oil, sir? No, thanks. It hasn't been raining here recently, has it? Not a drop of rain all week. Oh? Oh, I, I suppose that doesn't done your business any harm. Oh, people drive through here all kinds of weather. Mostly business, you know. There aren't many pleasure cars out on the turnpike this season of the year. I suppose not. What, uh... uh but what about hitchhikers? <laughs> hitchhikers here? What's the matter? Don't you ever see any? Not much. If we did it, it'd be a sight for sore eyes. Why? Oh, guy'd be a fool who started out to hitch rides on this road. Look at it. Then, you've never seen anybody? No. 
Maybe they get the lift before the turnpike starts. I mean, you know, just before the toll house. But then it'd be a mighty long ride. Most cars wouldn't want to pick up a guy for that long a ride. And you know, this is pretty lonesome country here. Mountains and woods. You ain't seen anybody like that, have you? Uh, no. Oh, no, not, not at all. I was just uh, a technical question. I <laughs> see. Well, that'll be just a dollar forty-nine with the tax. It gradually passed through my mind a sheer coincidence. I had a good night's sleep in Pittsburgh. I didn't think about the man all next day until just outside of Zanesville, Ohio, I saw him again. It's a bright, sunshiny afternoon. The peaceful Ohio fields, brown with the autumn stubble, lay greening in the golden light. I was driving slowly, drinking it in, and the road suddenly ended in a detour in front of the barrier. He was standing. Let me explain about his appearance before I go on. I repeat, there was nothing sinister about him. He was as drab as a mud fence. There was his attitude menacing. He merely stood there, waiting, almost drooping a little, with a cheap overnight bag in his hand. He looked as though he'd been waiting there for hours. And he looked up. He hailed me. He started to walk forward. Hello! 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 No, not just now. Sorry. Hello to California? No, not today. The other way. Going to New York. Sorry. After I got the car back on the road again, I felt like a fool. Yet the thought of picking him up, of having him sit beside me, was somehow unbearable. At the same time, I felt more than ever unspeakably alone. Hour after hour went by. Fields, the towns ticked off one by one. The light changed. I knew now that I was going to see him again. And though I dreaded the sight, I caught myself searching the side of the road waiting for him to appear. Sandwiches and pop here, don't you? Yeah, we go in the daytime. We're closed up now for the I night. know, but I was wondering if you could possibly have a cup of coffee, black coffee. Just No, not this coming late, mister. My wife's a cook. She's a man. Oh, no, don't shut the door, please. Listen, just a minute ago. Uh, just a minute ago, there was a man standing here right beside the stand, a suspicious looking man. I, I don't mean to disturb it. And you see, I was driving along when I just happened to look, and there he was. How's he doing? Well, nothing. You've been taking a nip. That's what you've been doing. Now, run your way before I call our sheriff folks. I got into the car again and drove on slowly. It's getting to hate the car. If I could have found a place to stop, to rest a little. I was in the Ozark Mountains of Missouri now. A few resort places that were closed, only an occasional log cabin, seemingly deserted. That's all that broke the monotony of the wild, wooded landscape. And I had seen him at that roadside stand. I knew I'd see him again. 
maybe at the next turn of the road. I knew that when I saw him next, I would run him down. next afternoon. I stopped a car at a sleepy little junction just across the border into Oklahoma to let a train pass by when he appeared across the tracks, leaning against a telephone pole. Perfectly airless, dry day. The red clay of Oklahoma was baking under the southwestern sun. Yet there were spots of fresh rain on his shoulders. I couldn't stand that. Without thinking, blindly, I started the car across the tracks. He didn't look up at me. He was staring at the ground. I stepped on the gas. I turned the wheel sharply toward him. I could hear the train in the distance now, but I didn't care. Then I went along the car. The train was coming closer. I could hear its bell ringing and the cry was whistling. Still, he stood there. And now I knew that he was beckoning, beckoning me to my death. places faster than, say, another person in another car, couldn't you? I don't get you. Well, take me, for instance. Suppose I'm I'm driving across the country, say, at a nice steady clip about 45 miles an hour. Uh, couldn't, couldn't a girl like you just standing beside the road waiting for Liz beat me to town? Or any town, provided she got picked up every time in a car doing from 65 to 70 miles an hour? I don't know. What difference does it make? Oh, no difference. It's just a crazy idea I had sitting here in the car. <laughs> Imagine spending your time in a swell car thinking of things like that. What would you do instead? What would I do? If I was a good-looking fellow like yourself? Why, I just enjoy myself every minute of the time. I'd sit back and, and relax. If I saw a good-looking girl along the side of the road... Oh, look out! Did you see See who? man standing beside the barbed wire fence. Oh, I didn't see anybody. I, it wasn't nothing but a bunch of cows and, and a wire fence. No? What do you think he was doing? 
trying to run into the barbed wire. There's a man there, I tell you. A thin gray man with an overnight bag in his hand. Well, I, I was trying to run him down. Run him down? Kill him? Say you didn't see him, Baxter? You sure? I didn't see a soul. As far as watch I can for him the next time. And keep watching. Keep your eyes peeled on the road. He'll turn up again. Maybe any minute. There. Look there. How does this door work? I, I'm getting out of here. Did you see him that time? No, I didn't see him that time. And personally, mister, I don't expect never to see him. All I want to do is go on living. I don't see how I will very long driving with you. Oh, I'm sorry. I didn't... I... I don't know what came over me, but please don't go. So if you'll excuse me... You can't go. Listen, how would you like to go to California? I'll drive you to California. Seeing pink elephants all the way? No, thanks. Uh-uh, thanks just the same. Listen, please, just, just one minute, please. You know what I think you need, big boy? Not a girlfriend. Just a good dose of sleep. Please. There. I got it now. Now, you can't go. Please. Get your hands off me. Do you hear me? your hands off She ran from me. As though I were a monster. Two minutes later, I saw a passing truck pick her up. I knew then that I was utterly alone. It was in the heart of the great Texas prairies. There wasn't a car on the road after the truck went by. I tried to figure out what to do, how to get hold of myself. I could find a place to rest, or even if I could sleep right here in the car for a few hours along the side of the road. I was getting my winter overcoat out of the back seat to use as a blanket when I saw him coming toward me, emerging from the herd of moving steer. Hello! Maybe I should have spoken to him then. Thought it out then and there. For now, he began to be everywhere. Whenever I stopped, even for a moment, for gas, for oil, for a drink of pop, a cup of coffee, sandwich, he was there. I saw him standing outside the auto camp in Amarillo that night when I dared to slow down. Just sitting near the drinking fountain, a little camping spot just inside the border of New Mexico. He was waiting for me outside the Navajo Reservation where I stopped to check my tires. I saw him in Albuquerque when I bought 20 gallons of gas. I was... I was afraid to stop him. I began to drive faster and faster. I was... in... in lunar landscape now. The great arid Mesa country of New Mexico. I drove through it with the indifference of a fly crawling over the face of the moon. Now he didn't even wait for me to stop. Unless I drove at 85 miles an hour over those endless roads, he waited for me at every other mile. I'd see his figure, shadowless, flitting before me, still in the same attitude, over the cold, lifeless ground, flitting over dried-up rivers, over broken stones cast up by old glacial upheavals, flitting in that pure and cloudless air. I was beside myself when I finally reached Gallup, New Mexico this morning. There's an auto camp here. Cold, almost deserted this time of year. 
I went inside and asked if there was a telephone. I had the feeling that if only I could speak to someone familiar, someone I loved, I could pull myself together. Your call, please. Long distance. Long distance, certainly. This is long distance. I'd like uh, <laughs> I'd like to put a, in a call to my home in Brooklyn, New York. I'm Ronald Adams. I'm a, the, the number is Beachwood 200828. Certainly. I will try to get it for you. Albuquerque. New York for Gallup. New York. Gallup, New Mexico, calling Beachwood 20828. I read somewhere that love could vanish demons. It's the middle of the morning. I knew Mother would be home. I pictured her tall and white-haired in her crisp house dress, going about her tasks. Be enough, I thought, just to hear the even calmness of her voice. Will you please deposit $3.85 for the first three minutes? When you have deposited a dollar and a half, will you wait until I have collected the money? All right, deposit another dollar and a half. Will you please deposit the remaining 85 cents? Ready with Brooklyn. Go ahead, please. Hello? hello? Mrs. Adams' residence. Hello, hello, Mother. This is Mrs. Adams' residence. Who is it you wish to speak to, please? What? Oh, who is this? This is Mrs. Winnie. Mrs. Winnie, I, I don't know any Mrs. Winnie. Is this Beachwood 208828? Yes. Uh, where, where's my mother? Where's Mrs. Adams? Mrs. Adams is not at home. She's still in the hospital. The hospital? Yes. Who but, is this calling, please? Is it a member of the family? Well, what's she in the hospital for? She's been prostrated for five days. Nervous breakdown. But who is Nervous calling? breakdown? Well, my grandmother never was nervous. It's all taken place since the death of her oldest son, Ronald. Death of her... Death of her oldest son, Ronald? Hey, what's this? What number is this? This is Beechwood 20828. It's all been very sudden. He was killed just six days ago in an automobile accident on the Brooklyn Bridge. Your three minutes are up, sir. Your three minutes are up, sir. Your three minutes are up, sir. And so... So I'm sitting here in this deserted auto camp in Gallup, New Mexico. I'm trying to think. Trying to get hold of myself. 
Otherwise, I... I'm going to go crazy. Outside, it's night. The vast, soulless night of New Mexico. A million stars are in the sky. Ahead of me stretch a thousand miles of empty mesa. Mountains. Prairies. Desert. Somewhere among them, he's waiting for me. Somewhere I shall know who he is and who I am. the hitchhiker, and to Orson Welles our considerable thanks for his playing of the title role. Mr. Welles, help wanted. Men, women, and children. Nature of work hard, monotonous, back-breaking labor. Hours, 75 a week minimum. Pay, few cents an hour. Added inducement, two meals a day, including several ounces of bad bread and a cup of thin soup. Don't delay. Apply at once. How'd you respond to a want ad like that, Mr. and Mrs. American working man and woman? You'd laugh, wouldn't you, and throw the paper in the trash basket. Dismiss the whole advertisement as some kind of a joke. But believe me, it's no joke. It's a simple statement of the working conditions that exist today in Nazi Germany and the conquered countries under Nazi rule. It's also an exact statement of the working conditions that will be imposed on you and every member of your family if the Nazis win this war. You yourself personally can stop them from winning, as you know. You don't have to give up your well-paid job to do it. You needn't have to be a soldier or a sailor or an airman or a nurse or a war worker to ensure American victory. Uncle Sam doesn't ask plain, ordinary, hard-working citizens like you to give him anything. All he asks, all this he does ask very seriously and very urgently, is that you loan him ten cents out of every dollar you make. That's all there is to it. Lend Uncle Sam a dime to win this war. And he'll pay you back with interest when he's won it. The easiest, most convenient way to lend him these dimes is to enroll in the payroll savings plan. Just tell your boss to deduct ten cents from every dollar he pays you and lend it to Uncle Sam in your name. Sign up for this simple savings plan today, and when victory comes, you will have war bonds in your pockets instead of Axis bonds on your wrists. Suspense will be heard again two weeks from tonight. Next Wednesday night, September 9th, the Columbia Broadcasting System will present over many of these stations at 9.30 p.m. Eastern Wartime an address by W. Averill Harriman, United States Land Lease Administrator in London. Mr. Harriman, as the personal representative of the President of the United States, attended the Moscow conferences between Winston Churchill and Joseph Stalin. Next Wednesday's broadcast will be Mr. Harriman's first public address since his return to this country. Suspense is produced and directed by William Spear. John Dietz was our guest director this evening. Tonight's radio drama was written by Lucille Fletcher. The original score was by Bernard Herman.